Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I wanted to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters who over the past four years have partnered with me to create over 200 episodes of the Indoctrination podcast. The show has been streamed almost 900,000 times in total and in over 50 countries throughout the world. I'm so happy to be able to help people share their stories and provide a platform for weekly discussions on how to stay safe from systems of control. We really could never have achieved this amount of impact without the generous support from listeners like you. But in order to keep the show going, we need to ensure our financial stability by teaming up with you, our listeners. If we can get even a small percentage of our regular listeners to contribute a few dollars a month, we could secure the show indefinitely, and that would be incredible. So we're going to offer some new incentives to fans of the show to join our effort and help give voice to survivors and protect people from systems of control. To start, we'll be offering exclusive bonus episodes available only to our Patreon supporters for as little as $2 a month. These episodes will be released every other Friday and sent straight to your email as soon as they're released. There you can conveniently stream it right from your phone or computer or even download it directly. And these bonus episodes will be replacing our current weekly check-ins, which supporters have been receiving each week. These Patreon-exclusive podcasts will be the same kind of full-length interviews with survivors and experts you hear on the show, including some of our favorite guests returning to update us on their stories and to offer insights on what's currently happening in the world. We will be offering a free preview of each bonus episode right here in our feed, which you can hear wherever you listen to podcasts. As a part of this drive to keep the show going, we will also be putting our first 50 episodes in the Patreon exclusive archive, which will be the only place they can now be streamed or downloaded. We'll be releasing our first bonus episode soon with returning guest Chris Buckley, back by popular demand. Chris is a combat war veteran and former white supremacist who now speaks out against extremism with the nonprofit group Parents for Peace. Again, I simply cannot say how much we appreciate our listeners and the amazingly supportive podcast community who has truly grown a village around us since we first began four years ago. We are so excited to start this new chapter of the show, and we hope you will join us to keep the show going for years to come. Thank you. Today on the show, I'm so happy to have Rachel and Shelly and Melissa, who have their own podcast called Journey Into Yoga Cults. They are all former members of a yoga cult. They now have their own podcast because they want to speak out and they want to share their experiences from their time in, how they got out, and helping others heal after getting out. It is a very important thing to do to prepare people for what to watch out for and also to let people know they're not alone when they're hearing these stories. 
and that it could happen to varying degrees. I was also struck by how Rachel and Shelley and Melissa were worried about speaking out. And it shouldn't ever be that people are scared to tell their story. It just says something about the level of fear induction or intimidation or something that happened that really went awry in a group that should be about making your body strong, making your mind strong, and instead it's left you feeling scared? That should never be. So here are Rachel and Shelley and Melissa now for part one of my two-part conversation with them. I am so happy to have Shell and Melissa and Rachel with me tonight and to have you all come together to tell your stories, where they overlap, where they are, your individual stories. This is such an important story because it highlights something that happens in an environment where things can really go awry and control can really be taken advantage of and people can really be pushed and that there is so much also social psychology that happens and control in so many different ways on so many different levels. And we're going to talk about it also in terms of the worry that a group has about people coming out and telling their stories and what that means about the secrets that they have. And at what point do you not have to keep their secrets anymore? So let us get started. So Shell, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Sure. My name's Shelly Swires and I'm from Seattle, Washington, now living in Mexico. I am a former certified Baptiste teacher, former certification manager with Baptiste yoga, um, and soon to be retired yoga teacher. Good. Next person is Melissa. Hi, I'm Melissa Longfellow. I live in Bellingham, Washington, and I am still a yoga teacher, but no longer a Baptiste certified yoga teacher. And there's a lot to say about all of that, but I'll leave it for, for after. <laughs> okay. 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 And Rachel. I'm Rachel Nelson, and I am a former certified Baptist teacher. I was a facilitator for a long time for and worked pretty closely with Baron and also ran the 200-hour training that they did in affiliate studios. And I no longer teach yoga at all. There is a lot that people do in response to having had a bad experience in a certain environment. And sometimes they say, okay, I'm, I'm done with that. And other people will say, I want to continue with that, but I want to be able to do it in a new way, in a healthy way. I want to take what I learned from what wasn't good and what wasn't healthy and really kind of reformat it and keep it healthy, keep it sane, keep it safe. And so it is really quite incredible to hear about all of the time and all of the, I'm sure the money and all that you devoted to this group and all the sweat. Um, and so I know that I could ask all of you this question, but you can just volunteer who would like to tell us uh, about what Baptiste yoga is. I know they're all over, all over the place. So who would like to talk about what it is and also how it's 
particular and how it's different from other yoga programs or studios? Baptiste yoga, if you didn't know anything about it, I would say in a nutshell, it's power vinyasa yoga, kind of a fast paced workout, physical focused in a heated room class, the kind where you leave feeling drenched and high, you know, high on that, uh, on that feeling of uh, having had a strenuous experience, but also very present in your body and mind mindful of your breathing and then it's typically done like they they love it when the room is full so you can get as close to each other as possible so there's that really sense of moving like in a like almost like in a school of fish like you're part of a larger entity and then you come out feeling that high feeling of being a part of something really amazing baptiste yoga brands itself as well there was a thing i was supposed to memorize for years and I've let that go. Like there's like a line you were actually supposed to memorize about vitality, power, and freedom and 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 a lot of other words that we were <laughs> taught to say um, to describe Baptiste yoga. That sums it up, I think, on on the surface level. And I would say like on the face of it, you know, like if you were a consumer, the type of person who is is like taking classes, you know, so there's really it's like great. There's nothing wrong or bad about any of that. I love sweating and feeling that way. The yoga in particular isn't different than any other yoga. It's not like yoga has been invented, you know, it's been kind of borrowed and adapted and, you know, amalgamated and, um, but it's just kind of branded, I guess, branded Mm -hmm. in a way. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And so what, makes it get distinctive is the leader, the creator. And that's where it separates itself from other yoga studios and other yoga practices. Uh, And that's always going to be the case that the leader infuses themselves into the, the style and not only the style, but the nature of the relationship between the leader and the instructors and the students. And so I'm wondering if someone can tell us a little bit about Baron Baptiste and who he is. Baron, like, I mean, I know a lot of his history because writing content for and working for him and the company for so long, I kind of had to. His parents claim to have been the people who brought yoga to the U.S. I mean, he used to travel to India with his parents and go to ashrams and his dad, Walt Baptiste is, if you, you could look up his dad, he's like Mm -hmm. a big time San Francisco athletic guy. And so Baron kind of grew up in that world of fitness and of being introduced to yoga in India at a young age, his parents supposedly, allegedly bringing over the first yogi to the United States and introducing it to the United States. I don't know if that's true or not. So he's kind of been in it for a long time. There's a lot of claims that he is the inventor of power yoga. His main study was he studied with Bikram, with Iyengar, and with Patabi Joyce. All three of the heavy hitters, quote unquote, mm-hmm. in yoga. And he studied with those three teachers for very long time. 
And from that, allegedly created his sequence and power yoga and kind of melded all of those three styles together to create Baptiste power yoga. And I mean, that's kind of like the history of him mm-hmm. in a way. Okay. And he created a big brand around it. He started his studios in Boston mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. I mean, all of this is Googleable, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, Mm -hmm. he started his own studios and those kind of took off, you know, they really took off. And so he started creating yoga trainings. Uh, One thing I want to add in that empowerment is a, and self-help and self-development is a major part of Baptiste yoga. So it's Mm -hmm. not just like you go and you learn some yoga poses, the teacher we're all taught to infuse a lot of self-help, self-development, empowerment jargon into our classes big time. And that's a huge thing. Um, His trainings include what I would like my biggest, not differentiation, but it's like landmark with yoga. Uh Okay. Got it. Is how I, how I now relate to it. So the large group awareness training idea, right. Uh, Which is very intense and there's a lot of repetition and a lot of sort of pushing people to get the lingo and follow the lingo and Mm -hmm. talk about the things that sort of scare them most or that they wish for in their lives and how to get there and all of that. Right. Okay. So I'm curious also just about the organization itself. I know it's Googleable, but roundabout, how many centers are there and how many members are there? So over the years, it's varied a bit. Um, I'm going to guess that now there's maybe 20 affiliate studios. So there's a couple of different paths. You can be a certified teacher and you can be an affiliate studio. Most people (laughs) within trainings are guided towards, don't you want an affiliate studio? That's really the peak of of your Baptiste training is that that's a possibility for you. As far as certified teachers, people who have ever been certified, I would say several hundred. I don't know how many are actually active. Yeah. So there's a lot of people teaching yoga all over the world who've been certified to train with Baptiste yoga. Then there are several affiliate studios and then There used to be one corporate office, the corporate office in Park City closed several years ago. So now Baron does whatever he does from one of his homes. And I assume there's a few people working for him directly. I don't know who they are post COVID. There's a a group that works for the Institute, which I used to, and that's an actual employee. It's a a small group of administrators and program directors. And um, yeah, that's about it. Okay. And Melissa, were you going to say something before? So I'm from Boston, which is where I first ran into Baron when he was, he was taking off. So I, at first he was just a, a guy that in Boston's a kind of a small city. So, you know, I heard like, oh, there's this guy teaching power yoga, which nobody had ever heard of before. And he opened this studio, which is, it was very bare bones. Like you would go in and put $10 literally in a jar and then when it was, and the class was packed, like, you know, like I was describing mat to mat and so hot in there, like, 
you know, like a Bikram class type heat, super, mm. super hot. And then out of nowhere, like there's no staff or anything, like no what to do. It's just like all of a sudden he just like appeared. <laughs> and he would teach this class and you're like, what's happening? What's going on? I don't know what to do. There's no demonstrating. There's no nothing. But he like had such a, I don't know what, I don't even know what it was about him or about the yoga maybe that it was like, it was very chance inducing. And then what I was going to say is that he was like an unknown at that point. Like before that, I, he had moved from Philadelphia where he was part of the Philadelphia Eagles football coaching staff, but he wasn't some like major known yoga teacher. You know, I'd never heard of him. Yoga wasn't even that big of a thing then. Nobody could tell you in Boston where there was a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. You know, now it's like every other corner and then across the street. But um, in those days, it wasn't like that. But then he quickly rose because there were the combination of these packed classes, like literally, and then people waiting out the door and down the street and around the corner. And he tells this story sometimes, but I typically wouldn't believe it because I know he does exaggerate. And I know just from historically, he exaggerates a lot of things, but I witnessed that. I know that is true. Mm -hmm. um, you would have to get there ahead of way ahead of time and be willing to wait out in the Boston cold winter snow if you wanted to get into that class. He got really popular. And then, you know, in Massachusetts, there's like the Kripalu Center mm -hmm. where, you know, there's all these weekend things that happen, guest teachers. And so he got on that circuit pretty quickly. And then Omega, which is in New York. And so it was like almost within a year that he was like on the scene, you know, in the yoga magazines and, and all of a sudden he was, he was, you know, self magazines proclaimed, you know, hottest yoga teacher revolutionizing the yoga world, something like that. The part about his history is interesting because I think like, we don't know actually if any of that's true, you know, like what Rachel said, like that was the company line and we mm -hmm. all bought into that, but nobody knows, like, did he actually study with Iyengar or was he just kind of around, you know, as a teenager where Iyengar was like, did he actually study? Did he actually study anything? That's right. a question mark. Yeah, no, I'm sure there are a lot of question marks and even just the idea that his parents were the ones who brought over the first. That's definitely not true. Okay. okay yeah. That's definitely not true. And, and that is, I mean, what, what you get from lines like that is that someone wants you to think that they are of some special lineage and that also their family is responsible for providing this gift to the United States. And I think it sets up this idea that, you know, here we have offered this wonderful thing to everyone. And then sometimes it makes people feel special being in his company or feel kind of indebted, like they want to give back to this person who's part of this family that provided this wonderful thing. So I mean, there are a lot of uh, reasons that have to do with setting up a situation where you have a certain feeling going in about this person and, or early on when you hear these stories, there's so much influence in that and manipulation in that. And we'll get to a lot of that. I was curious to find out about your impressions of him and then also to hear your stories. But before that, I was curious to have you go around and talk about why you wanted to be a part 
of this show, why you wanted to talk, what was important about this from your experience? What's, what are the messages that you want to be able to get across? And for people to have a sense of that, sort of as they then hear your stories, it will all come together. So Shell, do you want to start with what your motivation was for wanting to talk? Sure. I wish somebody had told me. <laughs> I wish there had been a place that I could have gone, you know, aside from my teachers or the affiliate studios who were saying how great Baptiste Yoga was. I wish there had been a resource, some resource to go that said something a little bit different, to go that said, you may encounter this, this may happen. And there just hasn't been. When I first started speaking out in general, somewhat naively, I thought that Baron would come out and say something and apologize. And I don't know, write some sort of letter and, and things would get better and things could go back to normal, right? Like in post Me Too, Baron's going to make a statement. We're all going to say, oh, thanks. Here's how things are going to change and they'll move forward. But um, I've been public for quite a while now and that's the opposite of what happened. So I've had to reassess a lot and be like, okay, why am I speaking out? Why am I speaking out when I'm being retaliated against? Because I believe that what happened to me, what I've seen happen to other people needs to not happen anymore. And I'm not going to be bullied by him. I'm not going to be silenced by him. I know that he's done a lot of bullying and silencing over the years. And um, yeah, no, I'm going to be one of the people that stands up and at least gives people an option of something to listen to before they choose to go. And maybe at best, create some real change. I don't know. That's my, that's mm -hmm. my hope. That's why I'm here. It's a wonderful hope. And you're right. What you hope for in someone who is a teacher, someone who has sort of this sort of spirituality around him, someone who cares about self-help, you hope that they're going to respond the way you wish that they would respond and kind of prove themselves to be the kind of people you were hoping they were or somewhere inside. And when it keeps not happening, then it, of course, is disappointing, but also sort of crystallizes your vision of that person and who they are and how much they're willing to take responsibility. And you're right. There are a lot of people who wish they had been told ahead of time about groups, even about front groups, not knowing that they were part of other groups. Like there should be a list somewhere. There should be something out there. There isn't enough information. And being the first people to talk is sometimes nerve wracking, right? Scary. Uh, right. Scary. And right, you feel like you, you're exposing yourself and you're like at, at the edge of this precipice. I just want to let you know that after people hear this, because this is such a large organization, there are going to be many people who are going to be coming forward. Of course, some who are going to feel like they have to kind of tout the party line and be mad and who are going to think that you're defaming, but you're not. You're just telling your story, which is your story. So you have the right to tell your story. Everyone has the right to tell their story. But there are going to be other people who are then going to come forward with similar stories to yours. Some worse, some better. It doesn't matter, but similar in the same group. And they were just waiting. They were waiting for someone else to say it first because it's hard to be the first. So I give you a lot of credit for wanting to do this, for wanting to talk, because it's going to give people an opportunity to, first of all, not feel alone. But I think you'll see kind of a cascade after of responses. And any response I get also in, in response to this where people say, me too, 
I will certainly pass them on to you so that you can see the impact that I think this is going to make. So thank you, Shell. And so Melissa, how about you? The reason I I want to do this is because I feel like that saying, if you see something, say something. The interesting thing is that I've been in this organization for uh, over 20 years and I saw a lot of things, but I, I didn't see through the fog of what I now know is an indoctrination process. I literally did not see what I see now because um, I was so, uh, I just was so believing in the, the, the mission and that it's, you know, it's all for the good and, you know, what we're doing and then doing things and treating people in certain ways. Like I never naturally would be that kind of person, but Baptiste very much pushes you into being a certain kind of person in a cloak of like leadership and be a leader that creates leaders, but it's very much a, a forcing. So now that I see it and it's like, honestly, taking me a long time to detangle what I thought I was seeing from what I'm really seeing now that I'm seeing, I, you know, I'm like, no, this isn't, this isn't me. I wouldn't do this. And I've brought other people into this organization. And part of it is to express my regret for having done that and to, you know, make right if I, if that's possible and then expose the truth so that people don't go down the same path that I've gone into and just believing that this is a good way to treat people right. see something say something i have literally nothing to gain and everything to lose thank you melissa and both you and shelly have already alluded to feeling like there's going to be backlash or worrying about that we're going to talk about that part the other part that you mentioned though melissa is about having gotten people excited about this and most people who are good instructors or even good members of things have done the same, but they did it with really pure intentions at the time. And I think it's an important thing to really highlight that I think once people really see what something is, oftentimes the numbers of people they bring in starts to decrease. It just naturally happens because they don't feel right doing it anymore. It's like suddenly you can see where the conscience and awareness kicks in. And so I understand though, you wanting to kind of make up for that, even though it was done very innocently. Right. The intentions are good. And I'm so clear on that, but you know, you can have all the best intentions and still cause harm. It's important, at least for me to acknowledge that, you know, that yeah, my intentions weren't good, but I also did cause harm. So I'm sorry. Mm. Right. Thank you. And Rachel, how about you? I think for me, it's letting people know that they weren't crazy. I haven't been as publicly vocal as Shelly. It's been in more private like support groups. And it's meant more to me to be like, you're not alone. Like the things you knew were wrong, were wrong. And especially for me being such a high level leader in the group, it's felt a little bit like, I know that 
it will make a difference if I speak up and people will be like, oh, wow, Rachel, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like she's sharing her experience and speaking in this way. I just don't want people to feel alone. And I want to see changes, not only within this organization, but it's so prevalent. I mean, you know, from your podcast, it's in so many places, but the problems we are going to talk about today happen in so many yoga communities. Mm -hmm. And I just would love to see some change happen too. You know, I'm not holding my breath, but I know me sharing my story is going to help people and possibly make a difference. And that's important to me. That's very powerful. And going back to what you were saying about being able to tell people they're not crazy, just so people understand what you're referring to, what are people coming to you with? It's just like people coming from certain programs and certain exercises that were done at programs and being like, oh my God, I wasn't the only one traumatized by that. (laughs) Cause that thing, that exercise we did was so traumatizing. And I felt like I was the only one who was like, this doesn't seem right. And now they're being able to be like, oh, I wasn't alone in that. Like other people in the room were thinking that, but it was basically shown to us in many different ways and even told to us, like, don't speak up and ask a question. Like, why did we do that? What was the point? Because then you're going to get coached in front of the entire hundred people about Mm. why your experience was not like everybody else's and it should have been basically. Uh, Okay. And getting coached is never fun. Not in front of a hundred people. No, 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 no. And I want to be able to make sure that we cover that tonight too. Mm -hmm. That is very commonplace being put on the hot seat, being publicly shamed. Basically Mm -hmm. that's the whole reason for it. Because really, if, if you were being taught something and it really was for your benefit, but not to kind of hold you up as a symbol of something or to use you, I think as behavior modification, so right? To make sure no one else did that because they don't want to be in your situation. A healthy instructor would take you aside and would also give you the benefit of the doubt and say, listen, you might just not have known, but this is the way we do whatever, but I'm just letting you know privately. And it wouldn't have been for show, but when it's for show, I mean, when, as people are listening to this, I really want them to hear the signs of an unhealthy instructor, an unhealthy leader, an unhealthy environment. And that is certainly one. Because if you're not being told privately, but instead publicly in front of everyone, there's a reason and it's not for your benefit. And so, okay. So thank you for that. And I'm curious now just to hear your stories, I think sort of starting with first impressions and moving on into kind of where things went awry. So that will mean spending time on each of you kind of more significant time. But certainly feel free to jump in into each other's stories. Doesn't have to be a monologue. But Shelly, do you want to start? Sure. I'll start. I was writing a little bit in preparation for this podcast about my time with Baptiste Yoga and realized what felt like 20 years was only, gosh, 10. No, less than 10, maybe seven or eight. I had been teaching yoga for a few years and there was an affiliate. Baptiste studio in my city. And I'd heard of it over the years, but I didn't initially, it's funny. I didn't initially go to a Baptiste training 
because I wanted to get like a legitimate 200 hour training. So I, I did something different. I remember like considering taking yoga teacher training and looking at the Baptiste website and being like, they don't offer like your standard yoga Alliance, legitimate yoga teacher training. Why am I going to spend my money on this? So I didn't, I did another 200 hour training in Seattle in 2000. You know? I just something like <laughs> I still had free thought back then. Right. And so <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And, and uh-huh. So I did that and I was teaching for a couple of years, I don't know, two or three years. And I knew there was something missing in my teaching and that it just wasn't very good. And I didn't really have a mentor. I didn't have a lot of support. And honestly, the teachers that were coming out of this Baptiste studio, they were good. I liked their classes. I liked how I felt after they made sense. They weren't the classes where I was kind of like rolling my eyes and watching my watch. Like they just physically, like Melissa was talking about the sweaty, but then, you know, just this up and down, like physically they felt so good. And that those little pieces of personal development in there, I'd never experienced anything like that. So I, in 2011, signed up to go to a level one teacher training, which was in Hawaii on the big Island. And I went, I had taken a workshop at the affiliate studio in my area. And there were a bunch of us, there were like 12, 13, 14, 15 of us from that studio in Seattle who went to this training. It was in Hawaii and I thought we were going to be spending time on the beach. (laughs) The bubble. (laughs) The bubble, yes. I, at the time, was newly like adult diagnosed anxiety that I had been struggling with my entire life. So I was starting to be aware of that. My yoga practice was helping with it, helping me, you know, find presence. And I was like, So I was kind of on that journey at the beginning of learning how to advocate for myself and what I needed in certain situations, you know, practicing on my my in-laws husband and said, here's what I need. I'm not a pain in the ass. I just need this to take care of myself. And getting to this training was um, really challenging with that because we got there and it wasn't time at the beach. It was, let's see there. My first experience was we went in for a yoga class in a, and like Melissa said, it was in a bubble. So you walk into this room that I think, I think it was kind of a mesh room, maybe like a, like a, a camp tent when you're a kid. Is that correct? Like an airplane hanger, but they lined the whole, you know, how an airplane hanger Mm -hmm. is like semi round. And then they line the whole thing with huge sheets of plastic and then seal it. And then they crank heaters in there. So even walking in the level of discomfort was really intense. And then the floors are sectioned out. They're taped out on the space you're allowed, but it's only the space for your mat. You don't really have a space to put your water bottle or your yoga block. It's right there on your mat. And for me, instantaneously, I was triggered. It's like, okay, I don't, I don't have space. It was very claustrophobic. And that's how the practice sessions were. And we had our first practice session at night. And then they, um, I think they let us go to eat dinner and we came back and they told us what this week was going to be like. And basically they told us there wasn't going to be a schedule, right? That we would be there when we needed to be there. I'm even feeling a physical experience of it now because they weren't telling us when we were going to eat. They weren't telling us when we were going to sleep. They weren't telling us that we were going to be able, when we were going to be able to communicate with family, they pulled us off caffeine. They pulled us off sugar. None of this was declared ahead of time. And I remember going to assistance and like, 
listen, I have anxiety. It would really be helpful for me to know a couple of things. And I don't even remember what it was that they said specifically that was super gaslighting, right? It was just like, I don't know, maybe what can you give up around that? Or just, just with these blank faces and me just being like, oh no. <laughs> it was just be prepared for anything. These people who told us to be prepared for anything, like we wanted to get on their good side because they, I thought, pulled the strings about whether or not I was going to get to go to the bathroom or call my husband or go to bed at a reasonable time. I think the craziest thing to me about level one was how much I hated it the first few days. And then, you know, because they put out the merchandise and I'm like, I'm not buying any of this. That's ridiculous. I don't want to be branded by these people. I don't want to walk around with this. And then, you know, in the evenings, we had to sit in these crazy, uncomfortable chairs and listen to people share traumatic events about their life. This is Landmark. Varen Mm -hmm. has essentially taken Landmark and combined Mm -hmm. it with Yoga Asana. (laughs) It's very interesting. And also the answer, Rachel, that you filled in where you were really asking a real question, Shelly, but just be prepared for anything is a non-answer. And there's so many non-answers that you're going to be getting thinking that they're answers and thinking that that means something, but you really wanted to know to assuage and to take care of your anxiety and just be prepared for anything certainly does not take care of your anxiety. Totally. And it fits right into what Rachel said about like helping people know they're not crazy. Because at the beginning, it's like, oh, these other people are enjoying it. All these people are so in. I was told to come. I remember too, like the weird points though, like going up to share my personal trauma and really needing to be good at doing that. I I think just from childhood stuff, like I was really easy pickings for somebody to be indoctrinated into this group. Going up sharing, I remember Baron had said something about, look how grounded she is. And I was really proud of myself. And Wow. There were little, little things like the little, <laughs> little tells, uh-huh. yeah, right. the little crumbs too. Crumbs. It's like, cause mm-hmm. I wasn't one of the people that got yelled at. So I learned really quickly, you know, okay, you go up there, you do it. Like you're told, you tell the story. He tells you something. You're like, oh, that's brilliant. You go sit down and this is the way it works. And I also remember the people going up there and standing <laughs> up that were awesome. not doing that stuff. And we had to sit there for hours. So it was really, really early on that I learned there's one way to do it. You're supposed to do it that way, or everybody has to suffer and sit here for three hours. And that person who's resisting quote unquote barren is the bad guy because we all have to sit there. So we all learned very quickly. You do this the right way. You get to go to bed and get some sleep. Right. Oh, it's so interesting. I was actually just talking recently with someone about how resistance is my least favorite word in therapy. It is a horrible, horrible word. Oh, it's Baron's favorite word. I mean, that's your safety net. That's your defense mechanism. That's you saying, slow down. I'm not ready for this. That's you holding a boundary. That's a lot of things. And when it gets demonized, when it gets pathologized, then you are basically told you cannot say no to whatever it is. And with whatever speed I want you to get to that point and share that. And you also get positive reinforcement. It's like, you know, if you ever went to a school where if one kid was kind of acting out, then everyone had to stay in for recess. You don't want to be that kid who's responsible for people not being able to leave and go have dinner and go to bed. So there's so much social psychology here and so much psychology. I'm curious before you continue, what was your first impression of Baron? I didn't get it. 
<laughs> there were a lot of people that were ooing and eyeing, and I just, I didn't get it. I mean, he mm-hmm. was just a guy with a bandana. I really didn't. I really didn't. And, you know, so many people were very starstruck by him. And I, yeah, I didn't get it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Which is so interesting because it's like, then it becomes sort of the cult of personality. Like they, there's all this mystique built up around him, but he's really not anything special from what you initially saw. But at the same time, I needed him to like me very much. I had a friend who I'd come with that he was giving special attention to. Even though I wasn't impressed with him, I still felt this need for like, well, why am I not getting that attention? What do I need to do? Mm. Yeah, so level one, and this is something I know now that I participated in so many of these, but it's like the first few days were definitely made to break us down and I couldn't really call home. And we were told not to gossip with each other. So we couldn't go home and be like, is this total bullshit? Do we need to go home? Like there was none of that. Like we were... We were trained to not talk about that stuff, to keep it positive and to trust the process. That's another favorite. Trust the process that mm-hmm. we'll figure it all out at the end and that we just have to trust until we've made our way through. I remember specifically, you talk about the public humiliation. I remember there was a senior teacher who probably day one or two was teaching a student at the front of the room and Baron is in the back of the room humiliating them over just verbiage. Like they're saying, put your arm this way. And he's saying, no, say it this way. And it was clear, even at the time that he just made a change to how you're supposed to say things, which he does. And she's up at the front of the room struggling. But I even remember at that time, like a click in my mind being like, okay, so if you want to move forward with this organization, you have to learn to be able to take that. But this mm-hmm. is wrong. It's like, you got to be at the front of the room, take that, let it roll off your back. Mm-hmm. What else about level one? Um, Can I give an example of the breaking down at the front of the room? This is one that I witnessed. I witnessed a lot, you know, between all of us, we've done level one and then turn around and insisted it and insisted it. But one that I remember was, um, it was like the first or second night he had everyone write a letter to somebody that you've been inauthentic with and tell them how inauthentic you've been. And then he called on people to share their letter and read it at the mic. There's always a microphone and one to 200 plus people. And he had this one woman and she read it and it was like her traumatic story about what her parents did to her growing up and how much it damaged her. And, and, and she was getting teary reading this letter and everything. And then when he was, she was done, he said, read it again, but a little faster. And then she did it again and then read it again, but faster this time, faster, faster. And he kept making her do that until it was like, dear mom, dad, like you really fucked me up. You really, I'm really, blah, 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 blah. and it sounded ridiculous. And she started to laugh and everybody else started to laugh. It didn't understand what that was about at the time. I still don't understand a hundred percent, but I know that that's really minimizing first you're traumatizing someone. You could probably tell us all about it, Rachel, (laughs) you're traumatizing someone and then minimizing it. And then he, he said something around it. Like one of the things that he says, it's like your story, let's look a landmark principle, right? It's like, that's your story, you know, and, and which really gaslights and minimizes people's real life experience. Mm -hmm. So much of that is telling about that and ironic. So one of the things is that If you're telling about something that really is emotional, when suddenly you say it really, really fast, you actually do sound inauthentic. 
Um, so he was sort of making her inauthentic in the way she was telling it, which is this like, you know, that can play with your head. Yeah. The other thing is that it, it feels to me like a purposeful redirection because oftentimes people who have this kind of personality will accuse other people of doing what they do so that the focus is on everyone else having done all those things. You don't think they've done it because they're this kind of guide to you about what's wrong and what you shouldn't be doing. So you don't think they do it too. And they're going to help you with those things that you've done wrong. But sometimes people will say to me, I was, let's say in a relationship with a malignant narcissist. And now I feel that I am the following things and they'll make a whole list. And I'll have them write out the list and I'll say, now that list actually defines the narcissist. Mm -hmm. These were all the things they wanted you to believe were true about you so that you didn't notice it about them. That's a hundred percent. Oh my better. gosh. Because he, we were just talking said, about yes, the same thing to us because the favorites were resistant, not present, inauthentic. Oh gosh. Yes. Do you remember him yelling? There's not an authentic bone in your body. That was a favorite. Um, So the other thing is that someone who does these sorts of things also, I mean, it's going to sound a little sick, but they love the power of knowing that you will do something just because they told you to. And so if they tell you to reveal this thing in public and then say it faster, and then they, you know, he might've said, say it with an accent or whatever. The content actually doesn't matter as much as he says, jump. And the other person says, how high that's the satisfying part for someone with his personality. Yeah. Level one was like that. And then by the end for me, I couldn't wait to sign up for the next program. Like I didn't know what had happened. You know, there's, there's this dip and then they bring you up. Mm-hmm. The last couple of days, there's an intentional bringing up where it's all a joke and it's light and there's dance parties and loud lights and heavy thumping and, and, and late and late nights. And you've trauma bonded with these people. And then there's a chance to sign up for the next one. And people like me who were like, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to buy these shirts. Can't wait to buy more shirts and sign up for the next program. Wow. And I look at that now and I still am like, what day did that happen? Like what day did you know, the, the sleep deprivation or the controlled meals or the extreme heat meditation or really uncomfortable chairs or trauma bonding. Like what day did I get drawn in? I don't know. Rachel, you were going to say something before, and then we'll go back to Shelly. Oh, just the, having worked so closely with him, he did, he lived for Mm -hmm. getting people to do what he, like what he said like he gets off on it and yeah. hearing you say that and you know the few other things I would said it was like a bunch of memories burst into my head and like even if I was leading something I was someone who co-led things at programs and he'd be like go make them do this so he's getting me to go make them do something and he's at the back of the room like getting off on it wow And I'm sure that that will be woven into your telling of the story too, right? Because being that person who becomes someone's gopher in that way, where you're actually participating in um, kind of helping them get their ego needs met 
at someone else's expense, you know, in retrospect, right. Never feels very good. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Shelly, so here you were signing up. It was so uncomfortable and you weren't really noticing what was so fantastic about him to begin with. And suddenly you're signing up and you're involved in the next level. And what was that like? After level one, I signed up for level two and we were, we were encouraged to put things on credit cards. And I did. And my husband and I did not have combined finances. So I went, you know, level one is what, $3,500. And then I went in, I think, February. And then I had signed up for level two in August or September, which is another $3,500 and kept signing up for stuff. That's the thing is that you we would sign up for something new on a high and everybody else was going. Everybody else was going to this next program. So they didn't even have to enroll us as much. Like we all did that to each other. Like, are you going? When are you going? Let's all go together. And we get, you know, like $80 off or whatever if we sign up at that point. And so then I, I ended up going to level two that same year. And it was the same stuff. There was another senior teacher, a different one, who was teaching an amazing class, a really good class. And Baron tore him to shreds. And I, and it's same thing. It's like, I'm sitting there practicing the guys teaching. And I think level two, I started to realize more than level one is that I don't understand the language because he's doing something wrong. I don't understand what he's doing wrong. He doesn't understand what he's doing wrong. And he got pulled to the back of the room for being resistant. Somebody else taught. And I think one of the things that kept me going to trainings was that I don't understand the language. I need to keep going. I need to keep paying. Like these people are somehow evolved. I'm mentally ill. I had just discovered, you know, before level one, you know, official. And I need to keep going to these. I need to keep evolving. There's something on the other end. And I learned through these programs that being abused, being humiliated was what I thought a way to healing. It kept going. I signed up. For more programs, I eventually worked my way to a leadership role like Rachel. You know, I I led programs for the Institute. I I worked directly for them. And it was within that, which I think we'll all talk about later. It was within getting really close that I realized, oh, no, I'm in something over my head. I'm into something where if there's ever a concern, it's met with the methodology. And so in Baptiste yoga, there's three things you say. It's be a yes, give up what you must, and come from your ready now. And if I had a certified teacher come to me and say, hey, I'm not really seeing any benefits from paying these dues. I believe them because they weren't. And my job was to try to create benefits to which I did. And then I would go to Baron or the CEO at the time and say, hey, we need more benefits for these people. Here's what I think we should do. Here's what I think we should do. The response was always what can you give up around that? And what does that mean? I have no idea. It, <laughs> means there, it means there has to be something in Baptiste speak. It means there has to be something in my mental process that is causing the problem. And that mm-hmm. if I were able to give that up, we could move forward, right? That and mm-hmm. somehow a customer, right? Like, you, like the certified teachers were customers and somehow a customer's problem, I right wasn't able to process correctly. Right. And so I needed to be able to give up something to just be able to tell, I don't know. And this was what it was like working there. This was what it was like teaching there. And so I questioned myself and everything, even in my life with my husband, with my family, Mm -hmm. what do I need to give up around this? When there was an Mm -hmm. actual concern or an actual conversation. 
Mm. Like I still have to, it's like I'm deprogramming. Like, no, 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 you can't think that way. Like have a conversation. You don't need to give up anything. Mm -hmm. This conversation needs to be had. Right. I think that what is so interesting is that whole, what can you give up around that? You think that it makes sense. So many things that are told to us that are actually gibberish. If it is told us by someone who is in a position of authority, we think there's something wrong with us that we don't get it, especially when other people are saying, oh, but they don't get it either, but they've learned that they have to pretend that they do. So you think you're going crazy. And so going back to Rachel's point about letting people know they're not crazy, that's certainly going to be part of it. It didn't make sense to you because it doesn't make sense. I mean, that would have been so relieving to find out. A point that I need to bring up too is that Yes, Baron did a lot of this, but he had specific women in places of power who were the worst at doing this to people. They were bullies and really abusive to people who were high-level teachers and staff. Mm. Not they. There was one woman, and she um, was really abusive to me. And I just feel like I need to say that because everybody in the institute at the time was so into elevating these people and how great they were, and they. They weren't, they were really just mean and nasty. I know there's a lot of people in the organization who are there because the goal was to do good and have got messed up in this. Mm -hmm. And I know that the three of us are those people. And then I know there were also people there that didn't feel, it didn't feel that way. It felt like there was not, it was not just Baron who was there almost joyfully abusing people. You know, you bring up something before we move on to Melissa, you bring up something so interesting that I've talked about with other people, which is that I keep seeing this pattern of male leaders having women as their henchwomen, which I think is inherently misogyny. Uh So they can be the bad ones. They can be cruel. They're given permission, actually pushed a lot of the time or hired because they're not so nice to begin with. Well, they're often the ones who take the fall for these people and they're the ones who can get yelled at. And it happens so often. It happened in Nexium. It happen, happens in a lot of places. It feels to me like it's this message of I'm going to be the leadership, but from behind the scenes, I'm going to be like the puppet master and the people who are going to be cruel are going to be the women. So you'll be mad at them because that's how I feel about women. Mm-hmm. And I want them to take the fall and I want them to be the people you're mad at. It's hidden misogyny. It's a setup for women, I think. And I'm sorry that that happened. And I'm glad you mentioned it. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Melissa, to Rachel, to Shelley. It is so interesting to start to hear their story. And I can't wait for you to hear the second part of it next week. It took a lot for these women to come forward. There can be a lot of nervousness about being the ones to tell the story and sometimes being among the first to tell the story about a particular group or about a particular person who runs a group. There can be a lot of intimidation. And when you have a sense about how you've been treated in the past when you've said anything negative or how other people have been treated or other people have been talked about or threatened in some way, who knows, then you're going to be afraid. And so I give these women a lot of credit and I honor the fact that they have the right 
to talk and to say, this is what happened to me. What I think is so important is how much their story about what happened is dripping with irony just from start to finish. When you hear these stories, you can hear about what's being taught and then what's really being done. So in a group like this, not unlike a lot of others, there is the talking the talk and the walking the walk. So the leader will talk about a lot of things, but in the way that he or she interacts with the followers, they behave, they walk in a very different way than the way they talk. And so they're going to talk a lot, as Rachel and Melissa and Shelley talked about, about empowerment and self-help and self-development. And that's all good. Those are all really good things. But as you get farther along in a group like this, very often you are disempowered. You are not able to help yourself. And your self-development becomes much less important than offering everything to somebody else. And so when you step back, you can see it. You can see the irony. But when you're in it, it's very hard, if not impossible, to see. Something that they talked about that I want to make sure to focus on is that they had to write a letter about someone they've been inauthentic with. So very often when there is someone in charge of a group like this, they don't want to have the focus on them being inauthentic or being deceptive or being whatever. So instead, as part of this whole empowerment, self-help, self-development, they will have you think about ways that you have been either deceptive or inauthentic. And so it's a perfect way to have a redirection, a behavioral and emotional and focus redirection. So this is sort of back to this idea of manipulators having kind of a Teflon coating. And so they don't want anything to stick to them. So instead, they have you look inward and you have to explore these parts of yourself. What we sometimes think is that if someone is giving us an assignment, for example, having to write a letter about someone you've been inauthentic with, the person who asks you to write that letter, then you think, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, that that matters to them, that being inauthentic matters enough to them bothers them enough that they want you to be aware of the times you have done it. The truth is, though, in so many of these situations that we hear about on the show, the person who is being the least authentic is the leader. What I also find fascinating sometimes is that sometimes the leaders are actually very transparent about who they are. But we give people so much latitude, so much permission to just misbehave when we think we're getting something special from them or when we think we were specially chosen. So some actually are much more deceptive than others and some are really very bald-faced about, yep, this is who I am. But by the time they show you who they really are, you're kind of in it emotionally or 
you've already given so much of your time or your money, devotion, that it's kind of feels like too late to turn around. And so you justify a lot of their bad traits in your mind. And so you don't focus on them as much as you should. But if you have to write a letter about someone you've been inauthentic with, then what happens in a lot of these situations is that the information that you write is used against you. So when you're given an assignment like that, you want to think about two things. You want to think about the person who's asking you to write it and how they've been with you. Have they ever been dishonest? Have they ever withheld the truth? Have they ever been inauthentic? Have you seen them behind closed doors being very different than the way they are in front of other people, i.e. inauthentic? And so find out if you can and take a moment to assess the origin of this assignment, meaning the person who's given it to you. And if they have these traits and instead what they're doing is they're pointing the finger outward, redirecting so that you don't notice it about them, or at least that doesn't become the focus within the group. And the other part is to think to yourself, how is this information going to be used? You can always do a wonderful writing assignment. You can keep a journal, a diary. In fact, I think those are great ideas, but the information is yours. Within a setting where you need to write something, and you need to hand it to somebody else, or you need to disclose what you wrote to somebody else, then that means that information is no longer private and can be used any way the group wants it to be used and any way the leader benefits from having it be used so that you're on the hot seat. You're the one who can't be trusted somehow. You're the one with these weaknesses. So think about who's asking you to write it, And what's going to be happening with the information that you share before you put anything in writing or before you say anything out loud? Your information is your information. Ask questions before you disclose anything. Ask questions of the people around you and ask questions of yourself. Assess the situation. And then if you decide to not write something, that's your choice. And if they get mad at you for not doing it, or they tell you that you're withholding or that you're not being a team player or whatever else, that means that it really wasn't for your benefit. It was for theirs. And they're mad that you're not giving that power to them. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash Indoctrination.